Dear congregation, the title of the sermon this morning is Why So Much Religion? And if there's one thing that is simply a fact of our life and existence in this world is that there is so much religion in this world. The anthropologists who study these things tell us that there is hardly a civilization in the world that does not have some kind of religion, some kind of belief in something bigger out there, be it something sinister and evil, or be it something good, something that, is, uh, that needs to be appeased. Almost every religious group has some kind of ritual practice, some kind of prayer, some kind of sacrifice, all sorts of things, religious objects and, and things like that, no matter how primitive the tribe may be. There is always a religion. There's always a religious aspect to it. I'm told that the world at this point is is about roughly 30% Christian, 24% Islam, 15% Hindu, and 7% Buddhist, and all the rest are divided up between all the other more minor religions. I'm told that there are over 100 churches in Kalamazoo alone. Think about yourself this morning. How much time we spend in religious exercises. How much time we spend in church, morning and evening, and sometimes during the week. How much time spent in prayer. And all the parents here, how much money spent on Christian education. Right? These are things that we're very familiar with. Uh, Again, I'm told that 49%, so almost half of the United States citizens, attend church at least once a month. 61% of the same pray at least once a week. So even though we might be hearing things, right, of the rise of irreligion, still there is a great deal of religion in even our own country, which makes such a claim to be such an enlightened uh, civilization. So this universality of religion everywhere is something to be explained. That's the question that we have over the the title of of our sermon. Why so much religion? How do we explain the rise of this religion? Now, as Christian people, we believe that religion is a result of revelation, that there is a God in heaven. And we've already considered this in the past, right? That God has a written revelation that he gives to his people, right? But that there is also a general revelation which God makes, which is accessible to every single person. But how would the naturalist, how does a secular person who does not believe in God, how do they explain the universality of religion? Again, if you take their worldview, right, and that humans are are more highly developed animals, right, now, There's no religion amongst animals. Although my brother used to tell me that when the chickens would would drink their water and they would fill their beak with water, but then they would lift their beaks up. He always told me they were praying and giving thanks to God for the water they were drinking until I found out that really they're letting the water go down their throat. But there is no religion amongst animals, is there? There is no religion amongst animals. So you have a completely irreligious Again, I'm thinking like a, like a secular person now, right? A completely irreligious group, these animals, right? 
And if we evolved out of those animals, then at what point along that evolution did religion begin? And why did it begin? I'll, I'll provide one, one explanation that's given. But again, you can see how this is something to be explained, isn't it? Why is it? And it's not even just the presence of religion. The presence of religion, I think, you could probably explain on, on secular principles. But it's the universality of it. Why does every single civilization have some kind of religious uh, aspect to their, to their life and, and, and society? That's the difficulty to be explained. Well, as I opened this passage this week, I saw that Paul gives us a biblical, or the, the, the Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's explanation of the universality of religion. So that's what I'd like to consider with you this morning, is, is to take up this question of why so much religion in the world? And we find that in Paul's sermon to the Athenians. But let's back up now and take a look then at the second mission journey, because we already had the first. The first, remember, well, do you remember those four cities? Those four cities that Paul ministered to, where he planted churches in A, I, L, and D, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. But now we have Paul's second mission journey. It uh, it began in chapter 16, as we saw, and now it continues in chapter 17. Remember the last sermon that we did on Acts, that was two weeks ago, that Paul this time did not sail to Cyprus. And again, you have that map there on the outline. Uh, He did not sail to Cyprus as he did on his first mission journey, but instead he went north uh, from Antioch to Tarsus, and then he revisited those four cities in reverse order now, right, because he's coming from a different direction, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And then at Antioch he sought to go south, but remember the Lord closed the door. Then he turned to the right, or he turned north, and again God closed the door. And you'll remember Paul came then to the city of Troas. And we meditated in that sermon, right? That we as the people of God sometimes come to the city of Troas in our own life and in our own experience. And we wonder, what is God's leading for me now? Which way would God have me to go? And so it was for Paul and his companions. But in Troas, God provided that guidance in a dream. Someone from Macedonia was calling out, come over and help us. And so Macedonia is that country then. Again, it's at the very top of our map there, Macedonia. Remember Macedonia, the famous nation from which Alexander the Great came? But Macedonia sits on the top of Greece there. And Paul then uh, passed the island of Samothrace and came up to Neapolis. And in the chapter that we read, you see these cities listed for you, right? And it says when they had traveled through Amphipolis, okay, so uh, right after the city of Philippi, and Apollonia, you see that city on there, then they came to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, Paul, as he always did, began to preach to the Jewish people. And this also we've considered here in this series that when Paul preached to the Jewish people, he used special revelation. He used the scripture. It says in it says uh, that Paul reasoned from the scriptures in verse two. And Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's how he spoke to Jewish people. And this he did for three weeks in Thessalonica. This stirred up a huge uh, opposition, although do note that there was success as well. 
Uh, we remember the previous teaching from Acts that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and so it was here as well. At any rate, we read in verse 5 that the Jews became jealous. They started a mob, a riot, and they chased Paul out of the city of Thessalonica. And Paul went to the city of Berea. So we're going south, down the Greek peninsula there, down to the city of Berea. Here we're told that Paul again spoke to the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more noble-minded, we might say more open-minded, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so, as we're taught in verse 11. However, the crowd from Thessalonica, dear friends, if there's one thing that you you get from reading the life of Paul, is that the Jews are always after Paul. The Jewish people, uh, the Jewish religion, are zealous, and they are always after the Apostle Paul. Paul has a a constant... uh, persecution from these Jewish people. And they're not satisfied that he's left Thessalonica. They must follow him to Berea, which again on the map doesn't look long, but that's a good distance. And it's a very mountainous region. You know Greece is a very mountainous uh, peninsula. At any rate, they they travel down to to Berea. And it's at this point then that the companions of Paul decide that this is too dangerous for Paul. We have to get him out of here. So they secretly take him down to the coast to the Aegean Sea there. They put him on a ship, and he sails to Athens. And so now Paul arrives in Athens. This is the beginning, then, of our story here this morning. Because, my friends, again, if you try to put yourself in the shoes, I guess it would be the sandals of of Paul, he's come to Athens. Uh, He's he's a lonely man now, right? Paul, Silas, and his companions are not with him. He's all by himself here in Athens. Second, what kind of city is Athens? My friends, Athens is the Harvard of the ancient world. This, this Athens, this city, this is the pinnacle of scholarship and cutting-edge research in the ancient world. The greatest heavyweight scholars are in Athens. And that's where Paul is now. By the way, I think if you kind of read between the lines here, you, you kind of feel something of Paul's situation at the very end of verse 15. Notice that he gave a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. Again, I think you can catch something of Paul. He wishes his companions were with him. He's a touch lonely. He needs that support that they provide him. Paul, for all his courage, for all his lack of fear, he still loves his companions, and he's waiting for them at Athens. At any rate, as Paul begins to stroll about the city, he sees the idols. The Greeks loved their religion. They loved all their deities. And Paul now uh, finally, again, he, he preaches in the synagogue, verse 17, but also now in the marketplace or in the, the main place of the discussion forum where this was, he, he reasons with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And finally, they invite him. Again, they were always open to new ideas, right? That's what it says here. They invite him to come and speak to them directly. Now, again, I want you to to sense something of what's taking place here. It would be like if Harvard, the philosophy department at Harvard said, Pastor Engelsman, will you come please and address us uh, with your, what you believe to be true? Yeah, I'd, I'd be shaking in my boots a little bit, right? I mean, that's a pretty, that's quite a place to be invited to. 
right? And I don't have Paul's courage that way, all right? But Paul's a very courageous man. He sees an opportunity, and he takes it. He accepts that opportunity to speak in the Areopagus. And that's what we begin then in verse 22. He stands there, and he addresses them. Now, I see three strategies that Paul pursues then in this address that he gives them. The first thing is, is he needs kind of a, an entrance point, right? He needs, he needs you know, we always, we always say that, right? When you make speeches, you need something to kind of build that rapport with your audience right from the beginning. And Paul's not against those things, right? These, these rhetorical devices, right? These, these rhetoric, these, these strategies, Paul's not averse to using them. Again, he wants to make his speech as persuasive, as compelling as possible to these people. And I think there's something of a, an application there for us already, isn't there? That we too should try to be as compelling, right? When, when we designed that little postcard that went out to the neighborhood, right? We thought about how do people think in, in our neighborhood? And we try to address that to them, right? And, and you can believe that the message on that postcard is probably a little different in form at least than what would come to this audience here. And Paul's doing something similar. And so the first strategy is he grabs hold of this altar, to an unknown God. Maybe we could even kind of interpret that as to an overlooked God. Because you know the Greeks and the Romans after them, they were afraid of something. They were afraid that possibly they might forget a certain deity. And they wouldn't give him his due. And then that deity would be angry with them and they would experience crop failure or your home would burn down or an enemy might attack and win a victory. All these natural calamities, right, might happen if you didn't didn't give each deity his due. Each deity. And so just in case we might have overlooked one, they build an altar to the unknown God. Well, now, Paul grabs onto that. He says, folks, I saw this altar to the overlooked God. Now, I want to preach to you about that God, because you're exactly right. You have overlooked one. And I need to tell you about him because you can't overlook this God. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God of the creator. He is the great creator of heaven and earth. And that's my second strategy, that he seeks a common ground. He seeks to find something upon which they agree. Now, could Paul, just like he did when he went to the synagogues, pull out the Bible and say, listen, Jesus is the Messiah, and we know he's the Messiah because he rose from the dead. That was the usual message that Paul brought to the Jewish audience. But now he pursues a different strategy. By the way, we saw this strategy with Paul before. We saw this in the city of Lystra. Remember when he came to the city of Lystra and they tried to make uh, Paul and Barnabas, um, Zeus and Hermes, remember that? And And Paul preached to them. And he uses a similar strategy there as he uses here. So the common ground. Well, what is that common ground? Well, we find that common ground in verse 24. And Paul launches right into it. He says, guys, this is the God that you've overlooked. He is the God, verse 24, who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, here Paul begins with this common ground that we, we see this creation all around us. And we know this creation did not originate itself. That is an absurd idea. 
the Greeks were certainly intelligent enough to know that. But they didn't know how it had uh, originated. In fact, the, the general opinion at the time was that the creation had just always existed, that it was infinitely old. But even that doesn't explain, does it? In a sense, it might give an answer to the question, but it doesn't explain, it doesn't satisfy the human mind because there's so many things in this world that just don't make sense on that with that explanation. It's just It's not a satisfying answer. And so Paul drives straight to this reality, that the God that you've overlooked, Athenians, is the God who made the heaven and the earth. And furthermore, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. If you drop down to verse uh, 25, he talks about he himself gives to all people life and breath above all things. And then in verse 26, he made from one man, so that would be Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Well, what do we have here, uh, Sunday school catechism students? What is this that Paul is saying? He is saying that God is both the creator, and then you learn something else. Remember you said, or you learned this in Sunday school, catechism, right, that God doesn't just create the universe, but he also sustains it, he rules it, he preserves it, right? What's that called again? Do you remember that Bible doctrine? the doctrine of providence, right? That's just what Paul's saying here, that this God, the God that you've overlooked all these years, he's the creator of the world, and he's also the God of providence. He sustains it. He holds it up in his hands. And if he took away his hands, it would collapse into nothingness. So this God is the God of creation and providence. Now comes the area, though, of disagreement. So much for the common ground. But now Paul becomes... Uh, comes into the area where, now this, Greek philosophers, you need to learn. And that is this truth. That this God that I'm proclaiming to you exists outside of creation. He does not operate and live within the creation. Again, if you can, if you can think of the, the, the known universe, think of it as a box, just a box, Okay. God is outside that box. Why? Because he created the box in the first place. And God reaches into that box, right? He does miracles. He gives his revelation. He gave the scriptures. So God, by his providence, sustains that box. He brought it into existence. He keeps it in existence. And he's directing all the events of it to his own preordained objective, to his own goal. God's eternal decree is being worked out. Now, how different that is from the Greek gods. Because, you see, my friends, the Greek gods operate within the box. They operate from within the universe. Right? We know that because the Greek gods and all the ludicrous stories about them, right? They, they, they commit adultery, right? They fall down to earth. They lose their powers. They regain their powers. They do all these things, right? They, they act like supernatural people, you might say, with all the follies and foolishness of people. When you read Greek mythology, right, that's what you read. So-and-so got angry with this person, so they threw down down to earth. This person turned into a turtle and all these things, right? It's all from within creation. Now, you see how radical the worldview that Paul is presenting, because Paul is saying the God that you overlooked, that's the God that's outside the universe. He does not live and operate from within it, but from without it. This is the God I'm proclaiming to you, says Paul. Now, that's radical. That's something that the Greeks, they had to process that one. 
That was not something that they could live with. And that's what Paul is proclaiming to them. This God is the creator of heaven and earth. He brought the whole thing into existence. And he lives and operates from outside of it. So that's the common ground is the origin of the universe, right? The, the creation. But then Paul, again, he, he leaves the common ground and presents to them a God who operates from outside the universe and who controls all things in that universe. Then, my friends, the third strategy that I see Paul doing here is he quotes the Greek authors. Now, this is interesting to us, isn't it? Because you think, Paul, why shouldn't you quote the Bible? Shouldn't you quote the Scripture to these people? Well, these people don't know the Bible, or if they do know about it, they certainly don't regard it with any respect. And so Paul does not quote from the Scripture here. He quotes from one of their own poets. And you have that in verse 28. Paul puts this truth out, for in him we live and move and exist. Right? Oh, because previously he had just said, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. And then this is what the poet said. And, and really, it's not so much poet. Don't, don't think about poetry as we think about it. It's more like one of your own authors has said. One of your own authors has said, for we also are his children. Now, of course, Paul isn't putting his stamp of approval upon that author. But he's just saying, hey, look, you know, one of your own authors even said this, right? That what I'm saying, that God has created everything that exists and he lives outside the universe? Well, one of your own poets have even said, we are his offspring. We come from God. So you see three strategies that Paul pursues in this speech as he tries to preach to the Athenians. Now, this brings me then to my point of application and really the, the teaching of Paul, which is now going to answer the question that we posed at the beginning of the sermon. Why so much religion? And so now let's look very carefully at verse, uh, verse 27. Verse 27. So previously Paul has mentioned that God has created all things and he's directing it towards his own purpose. He determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. But then in verse 27, we have a purpose statement. In other words, a why, an answer to the why question. Why did God create all these things? Verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And this is the teaching of the Apostle Paul now in this, in this verse that God has created human beings with a unique capacity. If I can say it this way, my friends, it's as if God created humans with a sixth sense, with a kind of antenna. And that antenna, that sixth sense, picks up God's signals. I hope I can represent it that way to you this morning. That, he, that there's these God signals that go out just like a, a radio station would broadcast a, a, a signal, right? And our cars, our homes may have an antennae that picks up that signal so that we can then hear the message. Well, in a sense, what Paul is saying, that God has created human beings on this earth with that kind of antenna installed in their mind and in their soul that picks up God's signals. John Calvin put it this way. Oh, I put that... Uh, that uh, quote in your outline there. 
And uh, he, he says there exists in the human minds and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity. Some sense of deity. Elsewhere, he, he has talked about seeds of religion, that God, as it were, plants these seeds in the human soul. And because of that, human beings have this sense. And what does that sense lead them to do? When that antenna that God has put in our souls begins to pick up these God signals from the universe, human beings begin to reach out for God, for something. They, they begin to fumble around, says Paul. Just like in the dark, you might be fumbling around for the light switch, right? You can't see. I remember one time in this very building here, it was at night, and I came in here, I had to get something from the pulpit, and I came up the thing here, and I was fumbling all around, right, trying to find the pulpit. Finally, I, I sensed, I found it, right, and I, it was dark as pitch in here, and I couldn't see where I was going. And in the same way, Paul says, people, all human beings, okay, begin to fumble about, and they begin to reach out for God. There's something in their heart that, that speaks to them, that, that pushes them. There must be something out there that I can get a hold of. There must be something bigger, something greater than me. And they begin to fumble about for it. They begin to look for it. One of the, one of the books that I read this, this, uh, this week said that just as no one, no one of us discovered sight, right? It's not that you woke up one day uh, at, at age 11 and realized, hey, I can see, right? Or, hey, I can hear. No, you, you grow up into it, right? You grow up seeing and hearing. And as you develop mentally and intellectually, you learn how to use those things in different ways. But you don't find it. You don't invent it. And in the same way, this, this scholar was saying that the religious sense is in us and it just begins to develop along with our other senses. That's why I found it interesting that some would call this a sixth sense. Because as soon as a person, and we noted this at the beginning of the sermon, right? That no matter how primitive the culture may be, that as soon as they begin to mature, as soon as they become, their mind begins to work, they begin thinking along these, these lines. They begin acting along these lines. That there's something out there. And, I, and they begin to reach out for it. But they begin to fumble for it. Now they're in the dark, so they have a very difficult time finding it. And of course, this doesn't mean that they find true religion. That's not what they find. They begin to invent all kinds of religions. They begin to invent all sorts of practices and rituals. right? But all of it is a manifestation of this antenna, as it were, if I could say it that way, that God has put in the soul of every person. And this is what Paul is saying then. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, this, my friends, is the, is the, uh, uh, the atheist, as we, as we already noted, that they also be, have to explain this universal fact of religion. We've seen how Paul explains it. But what is the atheist, what is the naturalist, what is the secular answer to this question? Well, they have all sorts of different questions, right? There's different ways of answering this. A very common one that you'll hear today is this. That when, that when uh, again, going from animals, right? But as people evolved to become more and more sophisticated intellectually, they began to seek for agency or they began to seek for explanations of things. 
right? Why uh, does, it, does our universe look this way? Where did this come from? How do you explain the fact that suddenly uh, lightning will shoot across the sky, right? And a loud clap of thunder will come. Sometimes it rains. Sometimes it doesn't. My neighbor's house caught on fire and burned to the ground. Why? Right? And, and so the atheist secular people will say that people begin to search for explanations. And as minds begin to develop, they invented religion to explain these things, that the lightning and the thunder are gods fighting back and forth or whatever it may be, right? And of course, as, as science began to come into existence, people began to explain things naturally. So, they say, is the rise of religion. This is very commonly heard in a university setting. How would we respond to that, though? How can we respond to that? Well, first of all, friends, remember the, the question that we ask is, is not so much why is there religion, right? I mean, I think even a secular person can come up with a satisfying explanation of that. You know, some people are just religious. That's just how they are. The question to explain is why is everyone religious? Why is every civilization religious? That's the real question that you have to answer. And this doesn't really address that question, does it? Because you would think that some people would come up with different explanations that, that don't involve some kind of religious person or a deity of some kind. Furthermore, I think this is even more damning to this idea, <clears throat> this secular idea, is that wouldn't we expect that when science rises, the more sophisticated we become scientifically, wouldn't religion decrease and eventually go away completely? This is what the old philosophers said. Uh, these names might be familiar to you. Uh, Ludwig Feuerbach and August Comte, German philosophers, who explicitly said, you know, 100 years ago, that eventually science would displace religion completely. And yet we find the opposite to be the case. The very opposite to be the case. In fact, science grew out of a religious culture. It was the religious universities of the medieval times. That's where science was born. And we find that with the rise of science, some people become atheists, yes, but many people are even more confirmed in their religious practices. And there does not seem to be this opposition between science and religion that people like Richard Dawkins would want us to believe and would teach us that the more science rises up, the more religion is going to get pushed to the side. The opposite seems to be taking the place. Seems to be taking place. At any rate, Paul clearly teaches us then this answer, right? That God created people with that sense to begin to seek, to seek after God. My second point of application, my friends, is gratitude. Gratitude especially for divine revelation. Because we too were created with that antenna. We too begin to seek after God. But my friends, look here. Look what we have. We don't have to fumble about in the dark. We have the light of God's word and we can stand in it. And we do stand in it. We're standing in it right now. We stand in it this evening when we come back to church again. And on Monday morning or evening, whenever you do your own personal Bible reading, you pull that Bible out, you stand in the light. My friends, do we, do we think with all our familiarity with Scripture of what this is? This is a word from heaven. It's a word from God. And how can we not fall down in astonishment at the grace and the mercy of God? that he's given us this written word 
which prevents us from the fumbling about in the dark. We can just read it and know it and believe it and live it. How thankful we should be, my friends, for the Word of God. And perhaps this should convict us if we neglect the Word of God. This needs to be a daily part of our life, my friends, as Christians privately. And young people especially, I've pressed this upon you in the past in our catechism classes, that needs to become a daily habit, a daily routine to read the Scripture. I know it quickly gets pushed aside by other things, but that can't happen. Because if it does happen, that reflects on what you think this Word of God is. The book of, uh, in the first chapter of John, we read about those who loved the darkness. Well, when we do not love the Word of God, we love darkness. My friends, how it should lead us also to be grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who's come down from heaven. He's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And Jesus Christ is that revelation from God who spoke to us and taught us and gave us the light. What a blessing that is, my friends. My third application is practical atheism. This is what I've already said then, my friends, is living in the dark. Practical atheism is people who have the word of God, but they choose to live in the dark. Yes, they come to church, they believe in God, they believe in his word, they know the answers to the catechism questions, but they live as atheists. Theoretically, they're theists. They believe in God. But practically in their life, they're atheists. What difference does it make, my friends, that we live in the light of God's word? I ask you that. Have you found God? Have you found the light, my friends, this morning? You know, I had a professor. uh, No, this was not my professor. But when I was at Calvin Seminary, they had a speaker come in. And he was going to lecture to us on Psalm 119. He was a man who was especially gifted with the Hebrew language. And so, of course, we wanted to come hear this man. But uh, imagine our surprise when the professor told us that this man is not a Christian. He studies at the University of Michigan in their religion department. He studies Hebrew and he studies the Old Testament. But he's not a Christian. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's a man who knows the Bible in such detail, in such incredible detail. But he's not a Christian. And actually, I discovered that. Because when he was giving his lecture, he was talking about Psalm 119. And I, it's terrible to think of, but this man actually said, he says, now in this psalm, which is incredibly boring, he said it right out. Well, I, you, you can't see beauty in the word of God, can you? Unless you're living in its light, unless you believe in it and trust yourself to it. But many of us, too, can be the same way, practically, living as atheists, even while professing to be theists, if we disregard the light of God's word. This is God's special revelation that prevents us from fumbling around in the dark like secular persons do. My friends, this also then speaks to us in terms of mission. That should be application four on my outline. Application four, mission. Because it teaches us something about the person that we're trying to reach. When we speak to a colleague at work, when we speak to a student at school, when we speak to a, a neighbor, we know now from the word of God what that person has psychologically. That that person has psychologically in their own mind a desire, even a, a searching for something. They have that antenna, as it were. 
and they pick up those God signals. Now, they may be pushing it away. We read in Romans about those who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. But we know that that antenna is there. And that's why the, those questions are so powerful when we ask people. I call these the worldview questions, the why, the whence, and the whither. Why are we here? Where did we come from? And where are we going in the future? Those questions are so powerful. Why? Because you might say they take that antenna and they trigger it, right? They shake it violently because it forces people to confront this fact that there's something out there. They may not know what it is. But when we do our evangelistic, our mission work, my friends, this has to always be in the back of our minds that God has already created people with this sense, with this divine sense that there's something out there. In this sense, my friends, these people are already religious. Now, I know they might not adhere to any one of the particular religions that are out there today. But in this sense, they already have something of a religious sense. They're already feeling about in the dark for something. And what a blessing it is to come alongside such people, especially when they're willing to hear it, and to say, let me show you the way. Let me show you Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you sense, my friends, something of the blessing of that? That God has given us the way, the truth, and the life. And what a blessing it is then to be used by God to bring that way to other people. You know, that's what the first Christians used to be called. They used to call themselves the way. Isn't that lovely? The way. We know the way because we walk in the light. But so many around us walk in darkness. And what a blessing it is to teach them God's way of truth. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we're so thankful that in this sermon, as we read about your teaching, that you have created men and women and children, older ones, all of them with this sense of the divine. And everyone is, is fumbling about, searching and seeking for whatever that may be in their own mind. And they invent religions of all kinds. But Lord, we come before you as your people today to praise you for your word, to praise you for the written word, and to praise you for the personal word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has stood also in this place this morning and proclaimed in the hearing of everyone, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Oh God, I pray that we would take hold of this Savior and of this Lord, that we would submit to his teaching, that we would come to stand in the light that comes from him, and that we would see it as our great privilege and responsibility to explain to others the way, the truth, and the life as it is in Jesus. Lord, will you bless us now as we uh, attend our Sunday school and catechism classes, bless the adult study as they begin this morning, And we pray, Lord, that in all these things our minds would be furnished with the truth, that we would stand with great gladness and joy in the light. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who have loved darkness rather than light, who are, as it were, practical atheists, Lord, will you convict them this morning and show them the the incredible privilege, the incredible gift that divine revelation is to us when we may read it and when we may stop fumbling about in the dark and when we may find our way true and clear. Lord, please bless us then and keep us 
And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now on the blue hymnal to number 412. 412, I love to tell the story. Let's sing the first two verses of 412. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. And what follows then in verses 1 and 2 of 412 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.